This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. So Fraser, today we saw some new employment figures. Can you tell us what they say, what the headlines figures are? This is a great mystery. We have a shrinking workforce in this country. There are 50,000 fewer workers over the three months to September. That's twice as twice the drop that people expected. The funny thing is that there's a national worker shortage in this country. 1.2 million vacancies. That's twice as many as there were during the last decade on average. So at a time where employers are crying out for workers, we are seeing the workforce actually shrink. Mm. We also had figures showing that the number of people not working because they're long-term sick has now increased by 400,000 since the start of the pandemic. So that is equivalent to losing a city the size of Manchester from the economy. So no wonder we're in recession. So this cast a very interesting light in the recession, which, by the way, we're now in. People say, will we enter one? No, they, they, almost everybody thinks that right now the economy is contracting and that contraction will continue for quite some time. And it's contracting, not because there's not enough jobs, but because there's not enough people willing to take these jobs jobs. So in you know in Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, 20% of the workforce there are in out-of-work benefits. There are job adverts galore in these cities, but the two are not being joined up. So this really is a recession unlike any other. I even think the word recession almost doesn't do it justice because mm. we, we've seen recessions before. We know what happens. Then the economy gets into trouble. People lay off staff. Nobody can find work. But now we're finding a recession which is pretty much induced because various factors, as yet unexplained by the government and certainly unaddressed by the government, are conspiring to keep 5 million unemployed, out-of-work, claiming benefit people away from the near-record number of jobs there are to take. So, I mean, there's an interesting stat that 380,000 of the 630,000 increase in inactivity since 2019 is among those people who've got kind of long-term sickness. And so I think there's a fascinating question, which is, what is the interaction between the NHS waiting lists and the rise in economic inactivity? You know, how many people have dropped out of the labour market because they've got mental health problems that aren't being addressed, or they've got physical health problems that just make going to work a very uncomfortable and unpleasant how to deal with the fact that these, so many of these crises are linked, I think, is one of the big challenges for the government. I also think in today's numbers, you see two other big challenges for the government. One is you've got wage increases of over 5%, but people are still having a real-time pay cut because inflation is so high. By the way, Jane, it's interesting to break that down between private and right. public. For the private sector, yep. it's 7%, the public sector is 2%. Now, when I saw that chasm, I thought to myself, that's going to make it very difficult for the government to give nurses and the public sector workers 2%. If your average chap in the private sector is getting 7 so that will increase the political difficulty the government's going to face when it's looking for who gets paid what next year. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of the big challenges, especially in social care, where wages are low. How many people are going to be lost to the private sector, for example, supermarkets, which are which are paying people more money? And because, you know, I think, I think I'm right in saying that something like a third of a social care workforce leaves social care. I mean, the, the question for the government of how do you solve 
the waiting list problem. And there's some fascinating numbers today out from the IFS suggesting that there is, you know, the NHS budget is larger in real terms. There are more people employed in the NHS, but fewer people are being treated than before COVID, which implies that these, these waiting lists are going to carry on rising. So how do you deal with that waiting list problem? And then how do you deal with the, the public sector pay issue at this precise moment in time without big vacancies emerging in the, in the public sector? And Fraser, there was an interesting story on the Spectator's Coffee House today about the NHS waiting list. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is really quite striking. Kate Andrews got this magnificent scoop back in February, where showing that the NHS waiting list then at 6 million was going to rise to 9 million. Now, despite all the extra money, this was devastating news for the government that wanted to present a narrative of success and was being told it was going to face two years of increasing waiting lists. Now, about the, in about the summer... It was thought inside government circles that it wasn't going to be 9 million, it was going to be 8 million Mm. for a rather macabre reason. That reason was that people simply weren't showing up at the GP. So there was something like 7 million missed appointments in lockdown. People who were sick would otherwise have got diagnosed, but for whatever reason were discouraged from going to the doctors and didn't. Now, the NHS modelling assumed that a lot of these guys would then eventually present to their GP with whatever they needed and they'd go on the waiting list. But far fewer of them did. So they thought, okay, that's going to mean tragically more people getting sick, perhaps even dying at home. At home deaths are increasing right now compared to the average of the last five years. But they thought at least that will reduce the waiting list. But the IFS has, um, by the way, one of the finest research institutions in this country. I'm delighted they're turning their resources to the NHS waiting list. They're saying that, yes, there are fewer people come forward, but it's taking so long to treat the existing people on the NHS waiting list, but that counteracts it. So there's still going to be almost 9 million people on the waiting list, simply because the slowing up of the system, which is happening, as James says, and despite of a lot of extra resources, it's slowing up in a way that you back to square one, even if there are fewer people coming forward for treatment. James, to what extent is this a problem that can really only be immediately solved in the short term by more funding? I mean, I hear what you're saying about it, but there's a real terms increase, but people are living longer, the stuff that they need is uh, getting more demanding, medicines probably are getting yeah, more expensive, uh, especially new cutting edge stuff. So, you know, should the government on in the autumn statement, I mean, they're not going to because they have said they're not going to, but does the NHS just need more funding for now? Well, look, as countries get older and richer, they spend more on healthcare. And because of the UK's model of healthcare, that means more spent on the NHS. I think it is clear that NHS spending is going to carry on rising. I think where you can criticise the government is twofold. One is, I think, in the last six years, the Tories have neglected public service reform. I mean, I mean, they have been so distracted by all the other political battles. But the idea of, of, of ensuring that you get maximum value for the money that you're putting into public services has fallen away. I think that you can improve the linkages between health and social care. And I think you also have to think about... This is where we get into difficult territory for for centre-right governments. But you do have to think about preventative healthcare. You do Mm, have to think about... Like you have to think about encouraging healthier lifestyles and things like that to that save money in the long term the, the yeah. long term yeah. medium to long term demands on the NHS and so I think that, that those are the things where I think you've got to work out some more joined up 
thinking. I think it is very hard to think of a society that as it gets older and richer doesn't spend more on healthcare. And I mean, so I think, you know, I would be very, very surprised if the UK were to buck the trend on that front. Mm -hmm. And Fraser, I'm glad you mentioned public sector pay and private sector pay as a distinction there, because I was interested to hear in your Saturday shots with Kate Andrews about uh, your opinion that people should be paid more so that we can lure some of these out of work people back into it instead of having low skilled immigration, for example. So would you be in support of above inflation, i.e. a real terms pay rise for people in the public sector like nurses? Well, James uses the example of care home workers. By and large, they're employed by private care homes. They're the ones I think should be paying up. I am a believer in market forces, actually, here. And I think that I've got what, what I don't have any sympathy for are the, the warehouses and other people who are basically not offering enough money. I think it's a great thing that Amazon, the Asda, etc., or even the, even the supermarket used to work for us, Cindy Little, is offering, I think, the highest minimum wage in Britain right now. Now, when I see that, my heart leaps. That's the market but then the government as the public sector employer be offering more then? Well, I'm not quite sure how many government jobs are uncompetitive compared to private sector ones. If you look at the average teacher salary, the average nurse's salary, this is, isn't, you know... But uh, hold on, isn't this what the public sector, private sector distinction is telling us, that the private sector has grown by 7%? Still a real terms pay cut, but the public sector has grown only by about 3%. But it looks, it depends on the base. I mean, you've got to factor in there that how many of the, the private sector pay, pay went down quite a lot during lockdown, the private sector didn't. So you need to look at all these things in the round. You've got other things like the private public sector job security, the public sector pensions, which are, you know, equivalent to a top up on your salary. So if it's the case that people were leaving, for example, teaching and joining better paid similar professions, then and you can say, yes, the government is losing out the market force here. I'm not yet persuaded that that is the case, that the package of teaching benefits is, you know, it is, it is not scandalously low in this country. Look, very difficult decisions. I wouldn't want to be the one having to make these decisions. But I do think that, by and large, you, need, you can't just look at the percentage increase. You need to look at what the overall package is and how that compares to the security and the other perks, etc., offered by the private sector. I think mean, I mean, there's actually two other ways in which the current demand squeeze on public spending is, is more difficult than what happened in 2010. In 2010, public sector pay was ahead of private sector pay. That is much less clear-cut now. As Fraser said, you know, you've got to be careful you're comparing apples of apples. And then secondly, in 2010, it didn't turn out to be the case. But that public sector job security that Fraser Nelson was talking about just then was very important because people were expecting a big spike in private sector unemployment. At the moment, although unemployment has gone up a little bit, there is, there is a sense that we are still in a very tight jobs market. And so people are more inclined to push for pay rises. James and Fraser, thanks very much and thanks very much for listening.